Sequence is loading. Mr. Shore, I don't like your demeanor, your tone, and I would remind you of where you are. I know exactly where I am, Mr. Chief Justice. I'm in the Supreme Court of the United States. And let me tell you, you folks aren't as hot as all get out. Dear God. Are you ready? Studios, the home of Boston-Legal.org, you're connecting to Boston Illegal Radio. And today we have for you a story of Alan Shore versus the Supremes, Baby Baby Where Did Our Law Go, and Jerry and Dana from Cherries to Heartbreak. I'm Dana Greenlee and you're listening to Boston Illegal. This is the unofficial weekly audio experience of Boston Legal, and that's the David E. Kelly-produced television series broadcast here in the United States on ABC and now on ION Networks as in a syndicated situation. And 20th Century Fox is the producer, and of course, David E. Kelly Productions. Today's Boston Legal Radio is essentially a conversation about the 17th episode of Season 4, The Court Supreme. Hey, with me right now is my co-host for Boston Illegal Radio. You've heard him in the past, Rob. Hey, Rob. Hey, it's great to be here again. Oh, I'm We're glad. doing the Boston Legal Podcast. Very cool. It is. You were my very first co-host back on uh, season one. That's true. It's been a few years, hasn't it? And Yes, indeed. That was uh, 2004, 2005 when we started. Um, and now it's 2008. And you've been by my side being, I want you all to know that he's the support system behind boston-legal.org, the website. He's the financial backer. He's also... (laughs) Well, Dana, you're the one that does all the hard work, though. And you've actually been through uh, a lot here over the last year or so with your voice and everything. You should uh, tell all of your your listeners to the podcast what you had to go through to get back to actually doing a podcast again. That's right. Pretty amazing story. Well, thanks. I'll just take just a moment because it's not Boston Legal related, but there is a reason why we had a sabbatical. I guess you could call us the the hiatus, you know, extended a year and a half. Our last Boston Legal podcast was a conversation with David Dean Betrell. He was the actor that played Lincoln Meyer back in uh, season three. That was a year and a half ago, back in March 2007. After that, um, I had a little surgery. It was in the neck area. And during that time, the surgeon, wonderful guy, but he nicked accidentally a nerve. And I woke up unable to speak. And the prognosis was basically my voice could possibly be irreparable. The nerve may never grow back. Yeah. So you were whispering for like six months. No volume, no volume. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was six months. And, uh, And then it suddenly just kind of came back. Over a period of a few weeks, it just went from whisper to this. This is about what it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, mean, for many months, the the doctors didn't know if you'd ever regain your voice again. Because, and I was totally cool with it because the other medical condition was totally taken care of. But uh, the fact that I have spent many, many years on radio and we did, um, Rob and I both have done seven or eight years of a web talk radio show, which is a a technology talk show together. And my degree was in radio broadcasting and television. So, hey, that was kind of a bit of an adjustment, right? Yes, it was. Not talking. Well, it was also kind of kind of unusual to not be able to, you know, um, have your voice be like it was for all the years we were married prior to that. So it was, it's a little it was different. very strange. Yeah, I've, I'm trying to make it lower like I used to, and I, I can't get certain depth anymore. But, uh, hey, Rob, you have had a few changes. I just want everybody to remember that... Um, when we last talked, you were working for Melodio, which uh, did, what was it doing? And what are you doing now? Melodio was working with um, podcasts with mobile phones. And so now I'm working with Microsoft, doing a very similar thing, but uh, working with the Microsoft portable media player, the Zoom. Oh, he's a big wig at Zoom, everybody. So if you ever have the Zoom, which is the anti-iPod, but it's the same thing, really. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, much cooler. If you've, <laughs> Well, if you've, we're trying to be different than the iPod. Yeah. But it's, but it's, uh, it's very similar. It has the same kind of... 
structure to it as far as software and a, and a portable player. So we've got, you know, the equivalent of an iTunes and, and iPod type of, um, structure to the to the zoom so you can download the zoom marketplace software and actually you don't even need to have a zoom to be able to experience podcasts um, on your uh, laptop or pc yeah, go to zoom.net find out more um google rob greenley and zoom and you'll find out his blog on that too yeah. and may i just say you can get boston illegal radio at on the zoom marketplace as well as of course where else rob uh, you can get it uh, as a stream off of the boston-legal.org website, uh, or you can go directly to iTunes and get it off of there. It's in that catalog, as far as I know, still. We'll have to double check. Um, or you can just do a search in Google uh, for Boston Legal Podcast, and uh, you should be able to find uh, lots of links to it. Can I just say, I haven't said this before, Rob is also my spousal unit. Spousal unit. <laughs> so I'm very proud of him for working for Microsoft. This is like recession-proof employment, I'm telling you. Yeah, we, we live in Seattle, and it's just, it's the it, everything's cool up here. Yeah, it is. Well, we've got a new house. We're actually recording this podcast in a totally different kind of setup. Uh, it's very, very portable. Uh, you know, we had a very professional studio for many years with our own radio show that we did and we have and a so devoted now, media room it's a room just devoted exactly. to all, me- all things media in we're here. basically sitting on our couch that we watch tv at it's uh, a home theater doing our <laughs> our podcast with two microphones in front of us with two laptops so it's it's a little different recording situation um but it's uh i think it works good and it sounds great oh and just to bookmark this time and space right now the emmys are are playing um i'm i'm taping it but i already know the results thanks to my east coast friends we'll get to that a little bit later I want to give you a quick rundown on what we're going to uh, talk about tonight. The episode at hand, of course, is The Court Supreme. Why do we pick this random episode? I didn't do any podcasts for season four. We're only doing this one and starting, um, well, actually, tomorrow will be the first episode of uh, season five, the final season. Why did I pick this one? Well, it's the Emmy, basically the Emmy nominated, the Emmy written, Emmy nominated episode for Spader in the, in the series because it was such an amazingly controversial episode. How could I not do the court supreme uh we'll take this storyline by storyline there's really only two storylines there were three but one was on the cutting room floor so we're just going to talk about first um alan going before the supreme court we'll um finish up the episode talking about jerry espenson's love life and of course as we always have done we'll take a moment with the balcony hang out there with alan and denny and some scotch and um like i said we'll pick up a little bit of film that landed on the cutting room floor. I'll tell you what you missed in this episode that if you watched it, you didn't see. And Rob, at the very end, we will bring up the news. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some ratings and um, we'll talk about what's, what, what's coming up in the, in the future and um, kind of how Boston Legal is performing out there, and I, I guess in the bigger picture. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that this, this episode, uh, let me mention something is just very appropriate to the political environment that we're in right now. I think, um, you know, I think, um, Alan raises some very, um, good points about the Supreme court and how things have changed. And, and I think it was, uh, it was very interesting. I think it, it helps people think a little bit about important topics. I think we're all waiting, you know, in the Supreme court law perspective, we are waiting to see if it's a liberal or conservative that lands in the white house, because then, um, Justice Stevens can finally retire, and he wants to protect that particular leaning on the supposedly unbiased Supreme Court, right? Yeah. If it's a, it's a conservative, if it's a Republican or a Democrat, we'll see how that changes the court when they appoint a new justice at some point. Just to reiterate, this is episode 17 of, of season four, and there were only 20 episodes this season. It was a truncated season because of the writer's strike. Uh, it was broadcast on April 22, 2008. The writers for this episode, no surprise here. Who was it? David E. Kelly and Jonathan Shapiro. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And Jonathan was back. He's a he's a good writer, and he's not always on very many episodes. David E. Kelly always has his hand in it. Uh, and it was directed by Robert An- Yanity. Now, we mentioned it was aired April 22. Um, David E. Kelly actually pinned this back in March. Uh, just to put it in perspective, the writer's strike, which started November 5... Lasted three months. It was over February 12th is when they finally basically said pins up. They said pins down back in November. And he started pinning right away this episode. It was the third episode to air after the strike. And it was originally called Sacred Cows. And uh, that's kind of interesting because the Sacred Cows, what does that mean? It's kind of a, 
a play on, you know, these are these beliefs that, that maybe the justices or maybe people have that are untouchable. Very touchy topics, yeah. I would say. Yes. Um, and I kind of thought, well, maybe it's a play on mad cow, mad cows, which is, of course, <laughs> Dinny's affliction. But about a week after that was written, um, the, he, he changed the title to the Court Supreme. And I think it was said somewhere that he always wanted during the run at Boston Legal to write a Supreme Court episode. If you read some of the articles, David E. Kelly did really sincerely think this was going to be the last season, season four of Boston Legal. It looked like it was heading that way. He actually wrote the finale a few episodes later with that in mind because it wasn't actually known until after that finale aired that it would be renewed for a short fifth season. So he got his wish did a Supreme Court episode. By the way, speaking of the writer's strike, this was the first drama series to start filming after the writer's strike. Interesting. That was a very painful writer's strike for uh, many people in um, in Hollywood. I might, might just add to the conversation here. A lot of people um, um, struggled financially for all those months. Yeah. It does put in perspective how fast David E. Kelly can whip at that legal pad and, and, and scrawl out an episode, which I understand he writes longhand on legal pads, <laughs> legal pads. Because remember, they couldn't actually pick up that pen until February 12. This script was done and filming began February 20. So that that's pretty fast. And you know he had it done way before that because obviously he had to distribute the script and cast the guest stars. Speaking of guest stars... Rene Aubergenois, Paul Lewiston, was originally written in this episode. As you may remember, Rene bowed out in a previous season. But he's made a few appearances since then, and it was supposed to be in this one, and it didn't actually happen. His part, though it was written in the original script, was edited out before he even came into film, and uh, kind of Carl Sack, the John Larroquette, took over that sort of... Uh, he came along to the Supreme Court with them, which was originally what Paul Lewiston was going to do. We're going to play some sound bites throughout this podcast, but the first one I want to play to you I thought was a great fourth wall moment. It was actually the final words of dialogue in this whole episode. It was on the balcony scene, but there's a reason I want to play this for you. Maybe we could go to Wednesdays next week. Why not? Wednesdays. I like it. Maybe we'll go to Wednesdays next week. I think that was a little glimpse into the future. What do you think? <laughs> this episode was the last Tuesday airing of Boston Legal, which is its normal night. It was the normal night for the last three years. And uh, then it moved right in the last few episodes of the season to Monday night to make room for uh, home ABC. How I love you. <laughs> she says facetiously <laughs> to make room for uh, another push to keep women's murder club going. Uh, they wanted to move that to Tuesday night. They thought it was a better match or whatever. I'm sure it was done to benefit Women's Murder Club and not Boston Legal. Um, and Women's Murder Club, sorry, it, it it didn't do well in the ratings. It did pretty badly. Boston Legal didn't do too bad. So it isn't just all about the time slot, but but I think they've, they've often tried to leverage that time slot because Boston Legal's always had a very good time slot mm-hmm. um, to, to launch new shows. Didn't they um, do that with uh, Grey's Anatomy? They basically pushed Boston Legal off of that time slot so they could launch Grey's Anatomy. And, that, you know, that history has uh, proven that one to be very successful. That's true. That's right. Boston Legal started out on a Sunday night and then moved to Tuesdays. Let us jump into the storyline about the Supreme Court. Considers the case of Leonard Sarah. That's the character that actually parallels very well a real-life um, situation that was going on at the exact same time as the script was written and filmed. And it might also remind a lot of people of the episode in season one, the last episode of the season, number 17, where Alan went to Texas, in fact, another road trip, just like he will do in this episode, to try and save a man from death row that he believed was an innocent man in Death Be Not Proud. And Rob, that was an Emmy-winning episode for James Spader. As well. And Boston Legal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something about the death penalty cases kind of touches a nerve. You know, David E. Kelly is the the Rembrandt of the pen, and Spader is the Mercedes-Benz of the actors, and together they sort of just give us Emmy-nominated episodes. Well, as I recall, that was a very popular, um, you know, 
that that particular episode was very 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 popular um and i know it drove a lot of um traction on bostonlegal.org you know when that episode came out yeah the next day it was like your, your your biggest traffic day in the history of your website um so those topics are you know resonate with people mm-hmm. you know especially the people that watch this show that tend to be a little older tend to be a little bit more thoughtful so mm-hmm. i think it hits the mark good point um here we're going to listen to carl sack pulling alan aside to give him the news that uh there's going to be a very big case in his very near future. Alan, uh, can I steal you for a second? It's important. What's going on? We have a new client. He raped an eight-year-old girl. He's been convicted. His lawyer's come to us to handle his appeal. Specifically, she asked for you. I'll pass. The man has been sentenced to death, Alan. The appeal is before the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court. So after Alan hears the news uh, that he very well likely is going to go before the United States Supreme Court, enters Audrey Patterson. She's an attorney, only limited experience. I think she's only argued three cases, and she needs Alan's expertise because she remembers the Texas case. I've read the transcript from his death case in Texas. You're what I'm looking for. I have a flight waiting to Louisiana. That's where the client is. I'd like for you to meet him. Did he do it? He says he didn't. He has an IQ of 70, so... Well, executions of the mentally disabled are unconstitutional. He was never officially pronounced disabled. A 70 IQ only puts him in range, but in Louisiana... He could be governor. I'm from Louisiana. I'm sorry. Just when it comes to jokes or women, I can never resist the cheap ones. Are you cheap? So what Audrey Patterson presents to them is essentially a road trip. They're going, They're going out of town to Louisiana... The same state that they went to in a previous Emmy-winning episode about Katrina. Uh, the, I don't know if you remember Angel of Death. And yeah. that was uh, back in season three. They they went there and it was a very moving episode as well. It's interesting to note, and I think I mentioned earlier, this is an actual case that was happening at that time of this this being written. As you remember, the episode aired in April. And the Supreme Supreme Court was considering a case along these same lines that they didn't actually make a decision on until June. I'm going to hold off on what their decision was till the end of this segment, but David Kelly did left very ambiguous. Well, he didn't address at all if how the Supreme court ruled after Alan went before them in the way that's a little different with Katrina, the Katrina episode that where he was paralleling an actual case where a doctor was on trial for basically euthanizing some patients that were abandoned during a Katrina hurricane that one he did give a verdict in, and that was before the real-life verdict came in. And there was a little bit of controversy regarding that. Uh, but the real-life case was Patrick Kennedy was a person that raped his stepdaughter. Uh, by the way, Patrick Kennedy is no relation to Justice Kennedy from the Supreme Court. Just want to make that clear. Um, and the question here before the court in real life and in fiction was, as she said, it's, it's not so much if you know, the death penalty should happen. Is If the death penalty shall happen to um, a person who did not kill a person. So far, it's or since 1964, I think, so like 50 years, no one has been put to death for anything other than murder. And in this case, with Patrick Kennedy, there was a rape only of a child, a 15-year stepdaughter. That was the issue. And of course, in this episode, it's also an issue of mentally competent to stand trial, but as we'll hear in a minute, that was never proven in the lower court case so that he was uh, a lower IQ, so that couldn't actually be argued. Now, this is something that Alan is going on. Denny has an opinion about this. So let's hear what happened when Denny found out that uh, Alan was going before the Supreme Court. Little field trip, Alan? You think you're going to the Supreme Court without me? Denny, this isn't your kind of case. If it's before the Supreme Court, it's my kind of case. The client raped a child. It's not about the client, it's about me. Denny. The only thing missing from my legacy is an appearance before the highest court in the land. My best friend has the power to make that happen, and he didn't tell me. Denny, the Supreme Court isn't the place for my nonsense, much less yours. I can behave. Uh, I can suck it up one more time, like I did. For my murder trial in January, when I rose up and proved to the world, I won that, right? You did. 
have actually dreamed about this more than anything. You've never told me that. Well, I never thought I'd have the chance. And, well, I guess I never wanted to admit to myself that there was anything I hadn't accomplished. But to have the chance, my God, you and I to do this together. What do you want to um, guess? What happened? Was Denny able to finagle a, another ticket? Yeah, he was, but it wasn't without a little controversy, you know, you know, with Alan going, trying to plead his case to to accept him, uh, you know, on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I thought it was really interesting that um, that that Denny was was willing to kind of give up a little bit of pride to, to ask for that because it, it just seemed like it was a little bit beneath him to, to kind of beg for that opportunity, you know. Good point. Um, Carl Sack, the John Larroquette's character, pretty much had a conniption when he heard that Benny was coming along, you know. This was not yeah. a cool thing. But Alan did manage to zip down with Audrey down to Louisiana to the Angola State Prison to meet with Lenny, Leonard, Sarah, and to kind of get a feel for it. They all ended up going on the trip up to um, Washington, D.C., all except Lenny, unfortunately, who had to stay in prison. But it was very moving. I thought the actor that played Lenny was was an amazing guy. And you remember his, his IQ was a pretty low, around 70. Um, but you definitely get the feeling that he sincerely did not commit this crime. And oftentimes that's the case. You know, there's there's evidence, it's circumstantial evidence, and people um, oftentimes point to a African-American more than they'll point to, a, you, know, you know, a white person, even though, you know, they don't really know for sure. So it's unfortunately, but that's what happens. So, Lenny, we argue before the court tomorrow. They probably won't make a decision right away, so we all have to be patient. What about, you know, that I'm slow? Does that count? It does. They'll put you in charge of FEMA. You'll tell them I didn't do it, right? Lenny, for the purpose of this appeal, they have to assume you did. I want you to tell them I didn't. And I want you to ask them not to kill me. I know some guys want to die. I don't. I need you to tell them that. Denny, of course, had to make the little joke about FEMA. If you're slow, they'll put you in charge of FEMA. (laughs) Um, Excuse me, David E. Kelly made that joke. (laughs) And I guess I was wrong. Obviously, Denny was in the room. I forgot that. I said he didn't go to Louisiana. He did. Uh, Then Audrey set up a basically a mock or moot court, the the kind where they have every all the justices are there. Uh, represented by different people and they basically get a boot camp in how to present before the Supreme Court. Sort of different rules. Very much subservient, much more than a normal court. You know, that sits really well with Denny and Allen. So it's a pretty grueling situation and it's kind of interesting. The um, attorney William Connolly is the character's name. He's a stand-in for Kennedy. Anytime Allen tried to ask a question or make an argument before this moot court, um, he said, if you have a tone like that, you're done. And at the end, you know, okay, he's a disaster. So he was not not flying very well with his impertinent attitude. And by the way, the guy that played that attorney, represented the, the fake Kennedy, was Bob Gunton. And he's um, definitely, as many people that are guest stars on this show, a veteran of David E. Kelly's series. He was on L.A. Law. And he was also Star Trek The Next Generation. We must not forget any tie-ins with Star Trek. We like to mention that. So. And they are many and regular on the show, that's for sure. That's right. Of course, we move into the fact that they're heading now into the Supreme Court. And this was quite an exciting thing to see because, you know, surprisingly, they were not able to book the actual justices to be on the episode. So um, producer Janet Knutson made this quote in, a, in an article. She says, we cast as close as we could to the real justices. We dyed their hair, used lots of makeup. We also started with geniuses in our casting department. So some of the guest stars that they hired to play, like Justice Scalia was played by Jack Shearer. And just as my little... Um, I guess, uh, six degrees of separation. I like to bring in what they've had experience with David E. Kelly or Star Trek. Uh, this this particular actor was the night court judge uh, back in Boston Legal episode or season one when Alan and Tara went before 
the court dressed as Batman and Robin in that Halloween episode, <laughs> season one. So that's the guy who played Scalia. He was the night court judge also. Um, he's also played a judge in David Kelly's Ally McBeal. And he was on the LA, LA Law in the practice. And he was a justice in Picket Fences, another David E. Kelly episode. He was an admiral in Star Trek Voyager. And he was in the film Star Trek First Contact. That was a Star Trek Eight, I think. And he's in Deep Space Nine. And he's been on Murphy Brown. So this guy, I don't know if he works outside of David E. Kelly. He's done so much with him. The newest justice on the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts, his sort of stand-in on Boston Legal was that John Posey, and he was in Chicago Hope, another David E. Kelly series. Yeah, it seemed like that the the, the representation of the Supreme Court was um, was pretty good. I mean, it was very mm-hmm. very believable. Um, it, it looked like that the um, the actors that they selected to be on the Supreme Court um, actually did have resemblance to the true you know Supreme Court justices. Yeah, that's so true. I was I was pretty impressed with that. I thought I thought David E. Kelly did a really good job with that. That's true, and the casting department. This is something to end up on the cutting room floor, but I think it's worth mentioning here is that the night before the Supreme Court is written in the original script that Alan and Denny had a little um, incident at the White House. It actually, there is a reference to it in the balcony scene, which will play in the end. They talked about they were able to see the White House up close, and but we never saw that in the episode. But apparently whatever they did, I think it had to involve trying to use the restroom in the White House. <laughs> it would have been great. Um, it, it landed them in jail. And I think it was originally written, it could have been even Paul Lewiston came to sort of get him out of jail and then then was changed to Carl Sack. And then none of that actually made it into the series. But what did happen the night before that we did see was Denny, good old William Shatner, getting to do a little song and dance in a nightclub in D.C. Remember the dancing girls? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some chorus girls. That's typical David E. Kelly. I mean, we saw that, that same kind of um, sequences in the the Ally McBeal series all the time, you know, music. It was like everybody gets together, you know, after work, you know, that kind of thing. And this clearly wasn't that, but there always seems like this recurring kind of music in the, the bar kind of sequence that mm-hmm. David E. Kelly always has in his series. It was a little sly thing. I think a lot of people picked up on it. I'm curious if you did, did you see in that whole bar sequence? Cause remember this is DC. This is like where lawmakers are hanging out. Did you see one guy, white haired guy, Kind of a little puffy around the face. A lot of girls hanging on to him over in the dark area of the bar. No, I didn't see that. He looked a lot like uh, a certain William Jefferson Clinton. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> making making another statement, right? Yeah. So he didn't say anything. It's just I think that was what he alluded to. Okay, back at the... Uh, we're now approaching the actual Supreme Court scene in there. And you're going to be treated to... A few minutes of the full 10-minute argument before the Supreme Court that you can see its entirety on boston-legal.org and other places, I'm sure. Alan goes right through the throat. I think he starts out pretty calm. He starts out trying to follow the rules. I mean, I have to admit, I, I, I kind of cringed at some of the... <laughs> <laughs> Some of the comments that he would, um, he would. I don't know how realistic that would be in in, in the real world. But, yeah. Oh, and talk about impertinent. Denny is like all hep on on, on making this side bet. It's it's totally funny. He puts down fifty thousand dollars if if Alan can get Clarence Thomas to speak. I I didn't realize this, but evidently the dude has not spoken from the bench at all, nothing <laughs> for like two years, and. <laughs> So, you know, that Alan has to make all these attempts within, we're not going to play that for you, but to prod him to speak, you know. And he actually, actually succeeds. They uh, got a nice payday out of that one. That's right. So let's uh, take a moment and, and listen to some of the more intense part of that Alan Shore argument. Taking the justices to task. And a little off topic from his mission to present Leonard Serra's case. Actual innocence is not something you get to argue. Well, how silly is that? You're deciding whether or not to kill someone, and his possible innocence is irrelevant? Mr. Shore, I don't like your demeanor, your tone, and I would remind you of where you are. I know exactly where I am, Mr. Chief Justice. I'm in the Supreme Court of the United States. And let me tell you, you folks aren't as hot as all get out. Dear God. Let's consider your respective Senate confirmations. You all testified under oath that you never actually considered how you would rule on abortion. You must be kidding me. Never gave it a thought. No perjury there? 
Justice Scalia, you went duck hunting with Vice President Cheney while he was a named defendant in a case before this court. Congratulations on not getting shot, by the way. But you didn't exactly avoid the appearance of impropriety there. Justice Alito, you were caught hearing a case involving a company you'd invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in. Huh, no conflict of interest there? You also don't recuse yourself in terrorism cases, even though your best friend is Michael Chertoff, head of Homeland Security? Seems to me the Supreme Court of the United States should be made of sterner stuff. Am I right? Justice Thomas, at least put down the magazine. Hey. I really don't think you mean to come after us, counsel. Oh, but I do. In your short term, as Chief Justice, this court, with your narrow majority, has turned back the clock on civil rights, school segregation, equal protection, free speech, abortion, campaign finance. You've been overtly and shamelessly pro-business, making it impossible for some plaintiffs to so much as sue corporations, especially big oil and big tobacco. Somebody's got to go after you. ExxonMobil made over $40 billion in 2007. $40 billion. And yet 19 years after the Valdez oil spill, plaintiffs are still waiting to be fully compensated. Justice Scalia, you want to overturn the verdict altogether because it's not the company's fault that the ship's captain got drunk, but he was a drunk, and they knew it. Perhaps not the best choice to pilot 53 million gallons of crude oil through an environmentally sensitive area. You are getting so far off point. My point is, who are you people? You've transformed this court from being a governmental branch devoted to civil rights and liberties into a protector of discrimination, a guardian of government, a slave to moneyed interests in big business, and today, hallelujah, you seek to kill a mentally disabled man. I'm curious, as a group, how many executions have you all actually witnessed? I'm sorry, that's... It's unfair. I've seen five, and it is the most inhumane, cruel, and unusual hypocrisy of a system that promises to be just. I'll ask you to leave your personal politics out of this. And I'd ask you to do exactly the same. The Supreme Court was intended to be free and unadulterated by politics. It is now dominated by it. You're handpicked by presidents with ideological agendas. And of the two dozen 5-4 decisions in your 2006-2007 term, 19 broke straight across ideological lines. That's politics. And while you claim to be against judicial activism, you rewrote, uh, check that, invented new law to decide a presidential election, for God's sake. If that's the way it's going to be, then at least have the decency to put your names on ballots like the rest of the politicians, so that we the people get a voice. Mr. Shore, you have said quite enough. Now, you might consider using what little time you have remaining to represent your client instead of your own left-wing agenda. Yes. What do you think of that, Rob? I think that the Constitution needs to be upheld, and um, Alan was making some very good points, and um, and it's it kind of made me cringe a little bit because you know trying to confront people like that is uh, is a difficult thing to to do. You know, Alan's really to be commended for his his uh, his guts in presenting um, that to the Supreme Court. I, I think there's a lot of people that would uh, have would like to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and they do actually nothing stops people in the blogs um on talk radio and and all kinds of commentary places to to tell what we really thought especially after the the gore bush election and what they decided when when it was such a close vote and and of course all the subsequent things and certainly the u.s supreme court has become more political um over the the, the last few years so there's no question you know it's interesting one of the he does go on and talks about lenny sarah in that specific case, which we didn't play, but an interesting point that he didn't make, which actually argues against what Alan was trying to present, was, don't you think this is a case where they're saying if there's only a rape of a child, that that's not a punishable by death situation, only if there was a killing of a child or anybody, could that be considered in the death penalty, for the death penalty? Does that not then, if you can argue that criminals have a premeditation situation that they're somehow affected by what the punishment could be, which of course is an arguable point that they'll then rape and then murder the child because it's the same punishment. If, if this went through and also they'd have a bigger chance of getting away with it because there would be no witness survivor. Yeah. I think that the whole distinction of uh, a child rape over any rape, uh, I think is is really kind of an emotional reaction, mm-hmm. and it is based on really any kind of um, truth. I think any any rape is equally traumatic. I, 
I think that you could make a case that a, a you know a child may not even understand what's happening to to them. Um, yeah, versus an adult might be more traumatic. Yeah, for it, exactly. So the whole concept of of that somehow a, 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 you know a child rape is somehow um, more more egregious than any other type of um, activity that a criminal can do is uh, I, I'm just not sure it's on on the mark. But yeah, you know, point. I mean, it's it's kind of a political observation, I guess, at this point. But it, it seems like a common sense kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree with you too on that. Uh, so, what was the decision of the Supreme Court in this fictional? part because there was a real life part well we don't know as i mentioned before and and as alan said himself in one of the earlier sound bites is lenny we won't know the answer to this for some time so you're gonna have to be patient and that's what happens is david e. kelly doesn't go there he doesn't give us the wrapped up ending like you, you do in a court case you see the verdict you see the guy in the jury reading the verdict but we don't know that here and again this aired in april a few months later the actual supreme court justice in real life June 25, they came down with a, a 5-4 ruling that child rapists cannot be executed, um, which basically included that the capital capital punishment for crimes against, as they say, quotes, individuals can be applied only to murderers. And this is actually from the, the statement made by written by Kennedy. He says, we conclude that in determining whether the death penalty is excessive, there is a distinction between intentional first-degree murder on the one hand and non-homicide crimes against individual persons, even including child rape, on the other. Now, if that child rape involves some, you know, a murder, that's probably a, then it's murder. That, that's that's the distinction that that's a distinction. drives drives the difference here. So the Patrick Kennedy, which was the real life defendant, was not executed. He remains in prison, obviously, for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. In this fictional, we assume Lenny Sarah. If it followed the same, we don't know. Unfortunately, remained in prison, and he might have been innocent too in Angola State Prison. Um, and no, there was someone that was put to death for rape alone, and that was back in 1964. But it hasn't been since, so that's being upheld. That's great. Now we know Carl Sack was is the Paul Lewiston of the second half of Boston Legal. You know, he's the one that kind of waves his finger and he comes in and he has to do his wave, finger waving for the impertinent off-topic rant that Alan gave before the Supreme Court. But everybody was quite charmed at how this next soundbite ended, which is Carl doing his administrative thing and then giving a little backhanded compliment to Alan Short. As they, as Alan and Denny and Carl walk back into Crane Pool and Schmidt as they've come back from Washington, D.C., this is what we hear. Just to clarify, since you did all the arguing, should we lose... This does not count on my record. Of course not, Denny. I don't plan to end up 18 and 1 if you get my drift. Alan. Uh, one second. For the record, though some lawyers would have found your little performance heroic today and say, wow, you really are something, be aware it's not the policy of Crane, Poole, and Schmidt to attack, dismiss, disrespect the Supreme Court of the United States. And should you ever have opportunity to revisit the Great Hall, you will conduct yourself in a manner more commensurate with the values and policies of this firm, notwithstanding there are those who might think you really are something. Got it? Got it. Ah, Carl. He likes Alan <laughs> to some degree. And also, it, it's worth mentioning again that Denny's record, we hope, is to remain unbeaten, all wins. Because <laughs> technically, this was not his case yeah, anyway. That's, that's true. He just wanted to sit up there with Alan, I think, yeah. That brings us to the conclusion of storyline one of two of the court supreme. The second storyline, and actually, originally, I should say there were three storylines but one was dropped and used in uh, two episodes later. But uh, the second storyline, the, the final storyline, was between Jerry Espenson and Dana Strickland, who are recently acquainted. This is her second episode. We saw her first in the episode prior to this, where Jerry mentions that he met this beautiful woman named Dana over the break. And I think uh, the, that was a fourth wall moment, saying it was kind of like over the writer's strike break. And, uh, or I think he actually said over the strike. (laughs) 
and the actress that they they brought in, I was thrilled to see that they had brought in Rachel Lefevre, which is, um, she was a woman that had already been cast in David E. Kelly's much-anticipated BBC remake of Life on Mars. And so she was cast as the one female detective in Life on Mars. Unfortunately, as we found out several months later, in a negotiation in part to bring back Boston Legal for a fifth season, Life on Mars was negotiated right out of David E. Kelly's hands and back to ABC, who then saw fit to recast not only her part, Rachel's part, but everybody's part. In fact, the whole pilot was reshot, moved to a different city, and uh, that's a different show and a different podcast. But back to Boston Legal, Rachel played the character of Dana. But it's still the same story. And I mean, I've seen both <laughs> the one done in. We and haven't the seen BBC. the new one yet. No, that's true. We saw the pilot. We saw David E. Kelly's pilot. Uh, pilot of it. And, yeah. and it was almost, you know, almost exactly the same as the BBC version. Oh, right. I see what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see this, uh, the ABC non-David E. Kelly version. Can't say I must, I would like it because, you know, Gretchen Mall plays uh, Rachel's part. But yeah, I liked, uh, I got to tell you, when I first saw the pages of this, the episode previous to the Court Supreme where they brought in a, a girlfriend for Jerry. I was thrilled with the choice of the character name. Why? Because it's Dana. Oh, of course. <laughs> Dana is a, a first name that's used quite often in the Boston Legal Series. Well, I don't actually. know quite often, but I think well, it's, episode it's, two. Was it's, it's come up a few times, you know. Thank you, Dana. Thank <laughs> you, Dana, I think is the, the one that brings back the memory. Denny sitting in the, uh, the, the pool with the uh, milk. I think is what the flowers around him saying, you know, telling the, the wait staff that was helping them or something like that. (laughs) If I remember correctly. Um, Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Dana. And we, I think you played it over and over again on the podcast. (laughs) I know I'm not going to be quite so insufferable about that, but this time, but uh, you know, it's my own little fantasy. You know, I, I just have to say, I know that it's not, they didn't do it with me in mind. Although I must say, I'm the but you never know, biggest you know? Boston legal fan. I've been devoting hours and hours and hundreds of dollars. Well, to that this and plus, I'm and I'm sure that the writers read the forum and follow follow the website. You would think. But you know what? I have to be honest. That you know who the head of basically the president of 20th Century Fox is a woman named Dana. Now, who are they going to cater to? A girl <laughs> who runs a fan site, or their boss at 20th Century Fox? Okay. Well, that's. But that's, I'll have my fantasy. That's, that's probably a good point. But, you know, but who actually does more for them to help with their audience? Me. It's, it's Dana. <laughs> this Dana, Dana. This Dana. So let's, uh, let's, let's take a little moment to listen to Jerry, actually, how he opens. This whole episode is opened with Jerry, red-faced, excitedly coming into work, walking through the lobbies of Crane, Poole, and Schmidt, and he encounters some of his coworkers. Jerry? Katie, hello, welcome, hello. Everything all right? Yes, hello, welcome. Jerry, your face is beat red. Are you sure you're okay? I'm fine. I'm not sure you are. Look at his face, he's completely scarlet. I'm fine. Jerry, look at me. Has he been drinking? <laughs> What's going on, Jerry? Nothing. <laughs> Jerry. I lost my cherry. Jerry got laid. <laughs> what I find charming is he goes, nothing like Jerry never, you know, uses the ING on every word. He's very proper. <laughs> he, I was waiting for someone to say, you know, Carl to walk in and say, um, I'll keep my eye out for it. <laughs> yeah. You roll down the hallway. <laughs> well, Jerry's happiness doesn't last that long because... As we're to discover, Lorraine runs in. Lorraine is one of the newer attorneys there. Runs into Jerry and Dana in the offices, and an awkward situation happens. And after Jerry and Dana leave, Lorraine talks to Katie and explains the situation. This needs to be kept confidential. May I have your word? It shall be. Okay. Jerry's girlfriend. Dana Strickland. What about her? She works for me. I beg your pardon? I didn't entirely give up the brothel business. Only my London office. You're still a madam? I am. And 
Dana is one of your girls? She's a rather high-priced call girl. Yeah. Yeah, Dana's a call girl. Yeah. Dana's well. a prostitute. I actually find it, you know, peculiar that Lorraine is still in the brothel business. For those who missed some of the earlier episodes, it came out early in the season early in this season that she did this in London. She gave it up to come to the United States. She's obviously a high priced lawyer in one of the top firms, litigation firms in Boston. But she does feel a need to supplement her income with internet hookups. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. But I, obviously, it's not just so much for the income or the end of, you know, first of all, it calls into question a bit of ethics unless she's paying taxes on it. But Well, and it's rather unusual because it's it's like she's she doesn't see her girls. They're, it's all done online, which I thought was a really interesting kind of twist to her her portrayal of this is like she's able to do it almost almost from an anonymous perspective. Yeah. Um, she, she doesn't even meet the girls. She, it's almost like this online kind of matchmaking website or something like that that uh, is really anonymous, which which I didn't know those things really existed quite like that online, actually. Emperor's Club. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the real high-end kind of, you know, call girl types. You know, if she doesn't meet them, how does she maintain the, the or how does she assure everyone that they're high-priced and, you know, of the utmost quality, you know? People can be, a, yeah. you could be a dog on the internet, right? I mean, that's the old saying, not that people are dogs. But this storyline is really more about Jerry and how this impacts his his perception of, right. of Dana and whether or not he wants to keep that relationship going. And it, and it really is a, I can totally see his conflict in his mind about, you know, whether or not he should trust this person that kind of deceived him, actually. Well, you know, there's there's this question of, is it a deception or is it just leaving off some information until you become closer to a person and they know you for you? Because it does seem like she's quite, well, she does say she loves him. She does seem enamored of him. It doesn't seem like any ploy at all. No, that's certainly true. But but I think when you're dealing with, with, with love and you're dealing with these emotions, that is a very personal thing. It's, it, it, you know, I'm sure... Jerry really liked being thought of as like, you know, this is this is the only guy that she's involved with. And mm-hmm. I don't know if she can really yeah. feel, you know, or he can really feel that way. Yeah, I didn't get the impression that she was, she came and talked, well, they tell Jerry. Lorraine and Katie go in and tell Jerry, which I think is... I was Yeah, uh, I wasn't so sure about that one, yeah. you know, especially how Jerry would react to that. Because oftentimes you hear those kind of situations where, where the person... And gets angry at the people that came in and, you know, mm-hmm. shaked and rattled their world. And then interestingly enough, after obviously he has this reaction of that, I, I can't deal with her. Katie comes in and tries to actually convince him to give her a chance. Well, why did she tell him in the first place? But she had, maybe she is trying to amend for those those things. But Jerry says, you know, I, I broke up with her. Fini, Terminata, Kaputsky. And she was hard, sorry to hear that. It's funny, though, kind of creepy and funny. That when Katie came in to plead the case of Dana to to say give her another chance, there was someone standing in the corner of Jerry's office. Jerry had a doll. There's definitely this this um, this kind of uh, I guess plot line even with Denny of having you know a a, a Shirley doll. Yes. So there's definitely These human this pattern. Sex dolls or whatever. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And did Alan ever have a doll? I don't think he ever well, did. Well, I think did he, he really wanted to borrow the Shirley doll. Oh, that's right. I think he did get her in a closet once, Shirley, and Shirley busted him. I, I believe Alan. Mm. Alan Shirley didn't he? Shirley Alan Shirley Schmitto. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, so he reconnected with Patty. <laughs> We've reconnected. That's what he tells Katie. Whatever that means, I'm not quite sure what you do with a doll like that. Mm. <laughs> So the episode leaves us questioning whether Dana will ever come back to him. And actually, she does come back for one more episode. Um, but we are left basically knowing that they're not going to be back together as a couple. Rob, that brings us to the final and always wonderful balcony scene. This is always a great part. You know, <laughs> drinking and smoking. I just read a New York Times article, a Spader quote, where Spader says, you know, I think sometimes that the whole episode is just a device to get us to the balcony. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part that everybody looks forward to. I thought Scalia would rupture a blood vessel. Did you see Alito? He hasn't been so offended since they let blacks and girls into Princeton. 
I didn't really mean to go on the attack. I just... Did I at least make sense? Not to me. But I'll tell you this, I admire you. To march into the Supreme Court and fight for a principle you believe in. Wow. How many people have such a chance and actually seize it? You made me proud. My favorite part was when you got Clarence Thomas to talk. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we got to see the White House up close. As close as Ginsburg's mole. Did you see her making eyes at me? She's hot for me. What woman is it? It's my curse. <laughs> I was thinking about what you said. About mercy. I sometimes wonder whether that'll be part of my legacy. I mean, will someone stand up at my funeral and say, that man had mercy in his heart? I will. I hope they don't kill that kid. I'm for capital punishment. But I hope they don't kill him. Yeah. I read... somewhere... make time to travel with a loved one to a special place. You and I, first Nemo Bay, and now the Supreme Court. Where to next? Wednesday next week. You heard it. That was exactly the fourth wall breaking as they implied that next week indeed Boston would be on on Wednesdays. And also you heard him make that reference. Denny said uh, we've seen the White House up close and no one knew what that really meant other than they must have seen the White House while they're in D.C. But again, that was the cutting room floor segment where they actually got busted and got sent to jail for some incident that they caused in the White House. (laughs) The other, uh, while we're sweeping up the cutting room floor, the other storyline that was actually supposed to be in this episode, and I don't see how it could have been because that was a 40-minute episode, and obviously there was no room for it. It would have been too crammed, was uh, Renee Winger versus the Catholic Church. That's Missy Pyle. We've seen her in the past as Renee Winger, the um, monotoned attorney, lesbian attorney that comes in. She actually, this was an episode where she was going wanted to be an ordained woman in the church, the Catholic church. But anyway, this, this episode comes back um, in two more episodes in the, toward the end of season four. So it just got shifted. Another little bit that ended up on the cutting room floor was, well, when Denny was talking to Alan, he was the best lawyer he's ever known. It was a very fatherly moment. And Denny said he wanted to give Alan some fatherly advice. You know, just go there and be Alan Shore when you go to the Supreme Court. And, Mentioning that advice, the fatherliness of that advice reminded Alan. He told Denny the story about his father uh, that we never hear about Alan's parents. And there's been tons of conjecture on the forums about Alan's mother, um, who we want to see play Alan's mother, and what was the situation. But in this case, Alan imparted in the script that never made it to air that that his father, when Alan was going to law school, his father kind of mocked him and he said mockingly that uh, he asked Alan if he was ever going to argue in front of the Supreme Court. And Alan then wonders aloud if that wasn't the best motivation his father had ever given him. It'd been nice to have seen that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's like the the Super Bowl of being a lawyer, right? Is to argue in front of the Supreme Court, yeah. U.S. Supreme Court. And when your father says, yeah, I'm like you'll ever do that. And that's actually the motivation that probably propelled him for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can either be a negative thing or, you know, it kind of depends on the personality of the person that's hearing that. It can be a motivator or it can be a disincentive. 
I can I can never you know yeah. meet up with the expectations. Of course, I, I mean, I think that those kind of things can go either way. Yeah, and I didn't get the impression though that when Carl presented this to Alan at the beginning of the episode, that Alan was like you know panting for the opportunity. Denny was, but. Uh, yeah, I don't think Alan really wanted the the pressure of going before the Supreme Court. I think yeah. he, I, I just don't. Alan is very talented in this, you know, in this sequence, and he he does a terrific job. But he's very reluctant, you know, mm-hmm. and that's been consistent across the whole series, is that he's he's done things. It seems like that um, he knows is right, but it's also it doesn't come easy to him either. There's a price to pay, I guess, is what I meant. That's that's very observant. From a man who watched countless hours of yes. Boston Legal. You bet. Well, we always like to end the podcast with a little bit of news. I know that it can be timely, but Rob, I think you have some news about this particular episode that might be of interest. Yeah, and I've got some ratings information here. Um, this this particular episode brought in uh, about 9.93 million viewers and had a rating um, number of 2.7 for the audience 18 to 49. And for some reference here, the um, first of season four, the first episode of season four brought in about 10.3 million and the highest for, in the season four um, sequence was 10.6. So this episode was a little bit under the highest, but was a respectable number, I would say. Um, and was up from the previous week of um, 8.84 million uh, viewers. So it actually had, had a little bump to it, but it wasn't, wasn't the highest, but that's all right. Well, and you've got to remember, they'd been off for several months um, because of their strike, and this was like the third episode back. So it takes a little while to build the audience, and of course mm-hmm. the previous week was a little bit lower. This week was a little bit higher than that. It was moving in the right direction. Boston Legal does does poorly in the 18 to 49 demo it it, it skews a little older and so it's very strong in the 49 and over crowd the more um, affluent crowd which which is uh which makes a lot of sense when you think about the the storyline and and the the actors in there they're they're older and and it definitely appeals to that you know, older audience and and you know us having an interest in this show is kind of reflecting of, of that too we're, we're not quite in the 49 category but but I think it's plus. strong in the you know in the forties to to fifties range. I I think that's kind of the sweet spot for Boston Legal, and it's kind of unusual these days to have a series that appeals to that demo. I think. Well, you just have to count the number of car ads in Boston Legal, and you know yeah. who the advertisers are, and that's not a bad thing. Of course, well, it always scores high in the the affluent section. I think also Boston Legal is more cerebral than yeah. Most shows. Well, they, yeah, they yeah, it certainly is, and it also you know has a very um, I, I think high. Um, disposable income, so you know those those car ads are yeah. very appropriate to this series, and that's probably why it's lasted as long as it has. Is that it does appeal to a, a very high income. I, you know, I've worked for many CEOs of some of the software companies I worked for, and they all tell me they're big fans of Boston Legal, and they're all in like their their forties to fifties range. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It is interesting. I actually score some points when when Rob says, "Oh, my wife does a Boston Legal podcast." They're going like, "Yeah." You yeah, know, exactly. that's great. Yeah. Uh, I do have some breaking news. Let me pop in here because um, even though this was, uh, we're talking about a show that was back in April 08, we're actually recording this in se- September, what's the day today? The 20th? 21st, um, the 21st of September 08. And that's the night of the Emmys. The Emmys are actually in progress right now. It's 10 o'clock at night on the West Coast. and uh, But we do know because of the, tape delay and because of friends on the east coast that boston legal which was up for one two three how many uh seven nominations lost every one <laughs> well we can't feel too sorry for them they've actually brought in quite a few yeah. um pieces of hardware over the years yeah with this series no golden question. globe sag awards yeah. emmys uh humanitas awards oh yeah it's just been Full of surprises and, well and i think um um James Spader has brought in most of the hardware, I think. Yeah, he has. I'd have liked to have seen the series win for Best Dramatic. It hadn't yet. And I think except for maybe, I don't know if even a People's Choice or something, but hasn't. Um, but but Spader and Shatner definitely have won their share. It'd be nice to see Candace win, too. But. Well, I think it's in a different genre of... of um, I don't think it's as dramatic I mean, it's probably not the best dramatic series. See, that's always a toughie. Yeah. But I think it is probably 
they, you know, th- there's some comedy in there. There's some silliness. There's some dramedy. <laughs> dramedy, I, I guess, is the is the correct term. And there's no real category for that. Yeah. Per se. Oh, and it. I think it was was it last year, or the year before. There was a lot of talk about, you know, do you create a category for these like Desperate Housewives and House and those ones that are half drama, half comedy. But oh, Christian Clemenson won last year. That's right. He won an Emmy for um, guest star. Of course, he's a regular this year. Yeah. Also, I want to quick mention, uh, just this week, a, a day or so ago, the New York Times came out with an excellent article. It's always great to be written in the New York Times for Boston Legal. But I wanted to pull out a quote because they actually got David E. Kelly to talk. The man doesn't give very many interviews. I don't know no, why. You very rarely hear from him. Yeah, very rarely. He's up in Palo Alto. He's kind of away from the the hubbub of Hollywood. And, you know, the man writes. He's a writer. He's not a talker. So, I... I understand and i appreciate that but i'd love to hear him talk more david please come on this podcast sometime so but i did want to throw in a quote that i thought was a good encompassing quote um he apparently only talks to the new york times uh, he says the series has become well actually the new york times makes this right on uh, statement when they say the series has become equivalent of a weekly video op-ed column where Kelly uses Alan Shore to rail against a number of the matters that are troubling him. Yes, it is a video op-ed column. Um, but well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, I, I do love it. And this explains why. This is a quote from Kelly says, once I thought it was irresponsible for producer to be espousing his own views and rants. I've since become convinced we are living in a time where it is irresponsible not to. We are witnessing the death of debate. I agree. Well, actually, I think that there there's still debate. It's just the problem is that both sides are not uh, approaching the debate with an open mind. Here you go. They're all, all <laughs> always approaching it from from their perspective only, and they only want to hear their perspective only. They don't want to hear both sides of issues. This man who will sit all day with MSNBC on and, and while he does his work and just kind of have it on the background. I mean, you see tons of non-debate arguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that and, and I... I like to listen to both sides of arguments. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, if you listen to both sides, you can hear what both sides are saying and you can make up your own mind. And that's the thing. I, when, I mean, people will, okay, about David E. Kelly, yes, he, people are going to say, well, he has Denny representing the conservatives and Denny's a buffoon. He has Alan representing the liberals. Alan is reasoned and intelligent. But let's step aside from that for a minute and say that in every court case, you have very accomplished attorneys with that are representing maybe the conservative side that are that have great arguments and good you know really but you know that's the debate mm-hmm. is in court not that then he says you know he has to shoot a gun every week or he'll he might as well be rigor mortis <laughs> david kelly does write he studies both sides he writes both sides in a reasonable way and then uh, and actually sometimes he even makes alan the buffoon, in a sense. I mean, remember that Scientology one where, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, but Boston Legal is already in syndication, too. Um, on the ION TV network, um, they're beginning to air Boston Legal season one through four. That started on the 8th of September um, at, at 8 p.m. Now, it depends on where you yeah. where you live in the country. but I think it is 8 p.m. Mondays at 8, which I think is interesting because now Mondays is the new time for Boston Legal at 10. So you can watch the rerun at 8 depending on where you are, watch the episode at 10 and uh, have an all Boston legal all night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Quickly, before we finish up, I'm just going to give you a little tease of what's ahead. Um, We've got nine episodes actually in the can or almost in the can. Nine of the 12 remaining 12 episodes in season five. It's going to be 13 hours, but the last, the 12th episode is a two hour finale. I hate to say that word. Um, (laughs) So they're they're David Kelly's churning through it, and uh, of course he's. I think the deal he had with ABC is that he write every episode, which I think he was going to anyway. Um, some of the topics just want to give you for season five to look forward to. Uh, the first episode, the gangs representing a client whose father smoked cigarettes. They're taking on big tobacco. The guy died after smoking for what fifty years. Surprising, he died yeah. of cancer. Yeah. But the daughter is is taking big tobacco to task. This is something we've seen in the practice. It's It's been done, but, you know, we'll see a, a different sure. version. Uh, Denny also faces erectile dysfunction, probably due to the 21 self-prescribed meds that he takes. 
that story comes back to haunt um, season or episode two, where Dinny is hospitalized with toxic so- shock syndrome. Hmm. No, it's not because of tampons. <laughs> <laughs> I would think probably not, but you know that's the only time I've heard that term, unless it's just just from all of the the, the meds he's on. Yeah, it yeah. is. Um, and also, Alan's going to sue the pharmaceutical industry uh, because of what they're doing to Denny by advertising, you know, take these meds, you'll feel better, da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Uh, also, a 15-year-old girl is allegedly raped by a guard at a private drug facility, and that case goes, you know, in front of the courts of Boston Legal. And Marlena, Shirley's granddaughter, we saw in a previous season, she comes back in, um, talked about this a case stemming from voting, falsifying records and voting, because I think she's only 15. Some other news, Rob? Yeah, um, there's some DVDs coming out here. The the season four DVD set uh, is set to hit the market September 23rd, and Amazon is already shipping um, as of this podcast taping um, September 20th. So, and then also the season one through four um, complete set is set to release on September 23, and Amazon has it for 50% off or about 100 bucks. So you can order that right off of the boston-legal.org uh, website store. Um, and um, actually, that that there's a little percentage there that goes to Dana to help support the the podcast and the and, and the website and all the bandwidth that's used there. It's it's like a dollar or two per sale, but you yeah. know if you saw what we have to pay to co-locate our server, we're hundreds talking, and hundreds of dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, it's almost five hundred dollars a month. Yeah. So anything will help us. This is what I'm saying, David E. Kelly. I think you need to give us a little bit of sponsorship and some love. <laughs> or ABC. Well, there's there's other uses for our servers. We've got four co-located web servers, but you know we also host other people's websites and stuff too. So it isn't just Boston Legal that we use. There are people we don't charge. That's right, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to our um, Boston Legal podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much, Rob, for being here and adding color. Well, let me say, speaking from the, um, the, the Boston Legal community or speaking for the Boston Legal community, thank you, Dana, for uh, restarting the podcast again. And thank God for my voice back. Yes, I'm, I'm, I am definitely thankful that, uh, that she has fully returned. Our intention is to continue doing a podcast for the remainder of season five. So I don't know. If we don't, yell at me. <laughs> And until next time, remember this. Kick ass. Be respectful, but kick ass. Be Alan Shore for all your worth. She hugged me back Like the sailor said Ain't that a whole